we are talking about how to minister to people whose main objection is not the truth of the scriptures or whether Christianity is compatible with science, but it's why Christians behave the way that they do. Now, next week we'll talk about how do we, why do we believe the Bible is literally true. The week after that we'll talk about uh, is science or science and faith compatible. We're going to deal with those issues, but my belief is uh, that if you talk to people, that's not their primary issue. Now, just to give you a reminder, a couple weeks ago we talked about having a wise approach, and we said that whenever you talk to an unbeliever, you're, you're much better equipped if you know four things. If you know what do they believe, why do they believe this? How did they come to that point? Knowing their story is important. I know we, we feel like we have to say everything, we have to make our presentation, but it's so much more effective if we let them talk first and we hear what they're actually believing and why they believe it, where they get, where they're, how their journey led them. Number three, where do we agree? Finding points of agreement is helpful. And then number four, based on all that knowledge, how should I proceed? So, and that number two is you're hearing their story. This is my contention. You may expect to hear a lot of stories that say, well, I, I, one day I realized there's no way that the Bible's true because of what I learned in biology class or astronomy class, or you know, because I read this book or because I took this professor or because I joined this group, they convinced me that Christianity just can't possibly be true. And you will hear some of those stories, but my experience and my belief is much more often you'll hear stories that sound like this. It's because of this person who I met, who was a Christian. It was because of this church that I grew up in. It's because of this preacher that I saw on TV. It's because I've seen the things that Christians do, and I've come to believe that Christianity or religion in general is more of a, a, a source of harm than good. Uh, so I, I, get, I, left, I put a quote in your notes from Steven Weinberg. He's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He said, um, Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things, but for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. And so I think you'd meet a lot of unbelievers. Now here I'm not talking about people of other faiths. I'm talking about people who either grew up in church and walked away, or maybe grew up irreligious. But these are people who may not be atheists, although some are, but would say, I don't have any religious faith. Some believe in God, some don't, but they have no use for, for uh, organized religion. Now, that's going to be a lot of the people you encounter who are unbelievers. That's probably going to be the case with some of your family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors who are unbelievers. And they would say, it's about the disdain I have for organized religion because of what I have seen. And they would say, I don't think all Christians are bad. I don't think all religious people are bad. Most of them are good. But they would be good even if they weren't Christians. They would just be good people. The problem is with the people who religion turns them bad. It motivates them to do bad things. So I've, I've broken the specific charges into three categories, corruption, division, and violence. And I'll talk about each one of those from a Christian perspective, I'm, not, I'm really not interested in defending Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or, or Hinduism, uh, but why people say these things about Christianity specifically. 
And then I'll talk about five ways we should respond when people talk about these things, when people express these thoughts. So, first of all, corruption. So this, this might be interesting to you. Every year, the Gallup organization does a poll, and they list uh, all, you know, a whole range of professions. And they say, okay, which professions do you find trustworthy? Which, which people do you think are honest and have high ethical standards? And so from that they get, okay, these are the most and the least trusted professions in America. So I won't make you guess, the, the number one last year, the most trusted profession in America is nursing. 89% of Americans say nurses are trustworthy. It may have something to do with coming out of a two-year pandemic, and a lot of people have had more experience being around nurses, and that, you know, I think you and I have, have all experienced, when you have a good nurse, that can make a real difference. Uh, the other ones that were high were doctors, pharmacists, and school teachers. Clergy were 39%. So way less than half of Americans think clergy Members of the clergy, members of the ministry, are trustworthy people, that they're honest, that they have high ethical standards. It's even worse when you get to the younger people. When you talk to people 18 to 34, it's 24%. So that was really sobering for me to read, because that means that if I'm out in public and I meet someone who's 34 or younger, and they find out I'm a pastor, there's a three in four chance they don't trust me that they think that I'm not an honest person, that I'm, I'm a crook, that I've got, I've got bad motives. That's really disturbing. Now, at least I'm not a congressman or a, a car salesman because they, they scored 8%. <laughs> Members of Congress and car salespeople, 8%, they were the lowest on the poll. But that's still really bad. That is still really bad. And, and it's not surprising because every week, I'm sure you've noticed this, there's a new story of some scandal from some preacher, sometimes famous, Ravi Zacharias comes to mind, sometimes not so famous, sometimes it's just the guy down the street or some random preacher in some state who's done some terrible thing. And if it's not a preacher, it's a church. It's a church that's done something terrible. Um, I, I can remember my church before I came here was called Westbury Baptist Church. Does anybody know what Westboro Baptist Church is? Yeah, we got confused a lot with that. We'd get people who'd, ask, who'd call us and say, what's the matter with you people? And I'd say, I mean, probably lots of things, but we're not who you think we are. Um, so there are lots of stories of, if you don't know who Westboro Baptist is, you're better off, don't worry. But we hear these stories all the time, and we complain about that. We, we say, hey, why does the media jump on all the bad stuff? Why, why do they report the bad stuff and they make us look bad? Okay, two things. Number one, the media is a business. They're in it to make money, just like every business. If people didn't click on those news stories on the internet, if people didn't watch those stories when they were reported, they wouldn't report them. This is what people are interested in. They could do stories about average local pastor visits sick people in the hospital. Nobody would watch that. No one would click on that. So that's number one. Number two, even if they didn't report it, even if we could get the entire news media on our side and they could just do nothing but pump out sunshine about us, every unbeliever I know has a story of a Christian who's a hypocrite that they know. Every unbeliever I know, in fact, most of them have multiple stories and they will gladly tell you. 
Number two, there's division. In the same way, every unbeliever has a story of a Christian who is full of self-righteous anger and judgment and just ruins everything. And I'm not talking simply about what you're thinking. I'm not just talking about, well, you know, they won't go with us and do the, do the sinful things that we want to do. That's our, that's our stereotype, right? They hate us because we don't run with them into their sin. Well, maybe there is some of that sometimes, but sometimes it's more our self-righteousness and our anger that turn them away. So I'm going to give you some examples, totally hypothetical. These are not based on real stories, but they're based on things I've heard. I mean, stories like this have occurred. So, for instance, you might be talking to someone who says, yeah, and you're talking to them about their story. How did you get to this point where you don't, where you've rejected Christianity? Well, he might say, I, I had a teenager when I was, a, I, was a, I had a friend when I was a teenager, and he was a little different. He was, he was, you know, he dressed strange, and he had piercings and tattoos, and he had pink hair, and, and he used to come hang out with me. He was a great guy, and everybody in my family was completely cool with him, but my grandpa, the Baptist deacon, every time he saw him, he had to make some comment, some passive-aggressive comment, until my friend finally said, I can't, can't go to your house anymore. Those are the kinds of stories I'm talking about. Or, uh, you know, a person might say, well, I used to work at a place where everyone in that office just got along great. We, we were just like one big happy family. But there was this one Christian woman who turned every little thing into an argument. She was always right, and she had to make her opinions known no matter what. Or we used to live on a street where the, everybody's kids played together except that one house with the cross in the front yard, and they wouldn't let their kids play with anybody else's kids. They were too good for us. So things like this happen in the lives of these unbelievers. And then they turn on the news and they see some preacher uh, saying, well, the reason that hurricane hit our city is because of the gay people or because of the atheists or because of Hollywood and the movies they're putting out. And they go, okay, see, it's Christians that are causing the problems. We would all get along better if the Christians would just go away. They're the ones that cause the division. They're the obstacle to peace on earth. And then there's violence. And of course, this one's the most serious. And I don't, sad to say, I don't even have time to cover all the reasons, but I'm going to cover some of them. So you look at the Crusades in the Middle Ages, by about 200, 250 years or so, uh, the armies of Islam and the armies of Christianity traded the Holy Land back and forth, series of wars back and forth. Literally millions of people died. So, of course, some of them were soldiers, but many, many were not. And, and there are stories of just horrific massacres of men, women, and children by both armies, including the Christians. It's, it's just a stain on the history of the church. And then it, after that ends, you have the wars of religion in medieval Europe. If you know your European history, you know that a lot of the wars that happened between uh, you know, 1000 AD and, and 1500 AD, and even beyond that, were caused by, it, it, it was this branch of the church versus this branch. And then on top of that, you have the persecutions that happened because of that. And then you have the inquisition of the Catholic Church, especially in Spain, where people were tortured, where people were chased out of the country for not uh, aligning with the right belief system. In our own day, we've seen Catholics versus Protestants in Ireland. Fortunately, that Kind of came to a peaceful conclusion about 20 years ago, but a lot of folks grew up watching that happen. Uh, in, our, in our later time, in, in the 1990s, there was the, the Rwandan genocide. Now, I remember after this was over thinking, Where did, when did that happen? I, I didn't even pay attention. And I think most people were like that. 
All of a sudden we found out there were over 100,000 people in this African country that were killed. And then you find out, well, that's one of the most Christian nations in the world in terms of percentage of population. And yet you had, you had people who were just literally hacking their neighbors to death with machetes. How could that happen in a nation where the gospel had, had taken hold? And see, believers know these stories. And atheists can quote them. They know them by heart. And they will tell you the stories. That, that is one of, their big, uh, one of their main reasons why they don't believe. So what can we say when we meet someone who says, this is why I'm not a believer? And they say either something historical or something they've seen on the news or something they've experienced in their personal life from Christians who are not acting Christ-like. What do we say? Well, there's five things. Number one, we can grieve with them. We can grieve with them. Back in 2019, when the Houston Chronicle put out that series of articles about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, that was a tough thing to read. I don't know how many of y'all read that. I was still taking the newspaper back then, and I read every article, and it was tough. I knew a lot of this was going on. I didn't know the extent of it. They'd uncovered 700 different cases, many of them where churches did nothing, where people weren't held accountable. Some of them, it was even worse because they would have a minister or a volunteer that did this to a child, and then because they weren't held accountable, they were able to go to another church and do the same thing. And it was grievous. It, it should have broken your heart. And I, I wrote a letter to the reporter, Robert Downen was his name, and I just said, hey, you know, thank you. That was a hard read. I didn't enjoy it, but I'm glad you brought all that stuff to light. Now, hopefully these people can get justice and hopefully churches like mine can make sure this doesn't happen again. And I did not expect them to put it in the letters to the editor section, but they did. So there it is, biggest day, Jeff Berger, Pastor First Baptist Conroe, and this letter. I thought, well, I don't know what my church people are gonna think of that. Fortunately, everybody I talked to who saw it, the few people who still took the paper, came to me and said, I, I appreciate your letter. I thought you were right on. And I breathed a sigh of relief. Because the natural reaction in a moment like that is to say, hey, you can't attack my side. If you attack my side, if you say bad things about my team, then I'm going to lash back out at you. But this wasn't one of those times when that was appropriate. I'll admit, there are times when the media is totally unfair to everybody. Everybody's experienced that. But to the church specifically. And I'm the first one to get mad about it when it happens. But this wasn't one of those times. This was a time to grieve. And I hope everybody who read that, I know this is not the case, but I hope everybody who read that or heard about that, their, your, your gut level reaction is sorrow. And it should be. So when your unbelieving friend shares their story of, this is a Christian who hurt me. This is a Christian who who misrepresented the faith or represented your faith in such a way that I don't want anything to do with it. You should let them know how sad that makes you. Hopefully you really feel sad. Hopefully your gut level response is sorrow. Hopefully you want to you want to get in the time machine, go back and find that person and, and shake them and say, don't do this. You need to straighten up and act like Jesus or you're going to drive somebody away from salvation. But since time travel doesn't exist, the next best thing you can do is just grieve and say, listen, what happened to you is wrong. That's not the gospel. It makes me angry. They need to see that. They need to see that you, that you are grieved, first of all, because you love them. They need to know that, that you love them more than 
your own reputation. But secondly, you need to grieve because of the harm that is done to the cause of the gospel. It it needs to grieve us. So that brings up a question, though. What if the story they tell you is a story in which you go, but you know what? That Christian was right. You need to ask the question. Now, there are times, yes, there are times when truth hurts. There are times when people are offended by the truth of the gospel. And when that happens, all we can say is the gospel is faithfully presented. I'm sorry you didn't agree. But there are also times when Christians say true things in unkind ways. And some of you may not like this, but it's true. It is just as important to be kind as it is to be right. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. If you are not kind in the way you share truth with someone, you are not representing Christ well, no matter how accurate you are in what you say. So again, totally hypothetical example, but let's say your friend says, okay, so the reason I'm not a Christian now is I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, When I was a teenager, I met a girl, and we were dating, and I was much in love with her, um, but she wasn't a Christian. And my parents just treated her rudely and told me, boy, if you ever marry her, we will never speak to you again. Now, do we know that how God feels about people uh, being unequally yoked? Yes, we do. We know that God says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I told my kids, I've told my kids their whole lives. You can marry anybody, doesn't matter what they are. I just want you to marry somebody. Doesn't matter how much money they make, what race they are. I just want them to love you and love the Lord. If if one of my kids brought home uh, somebody who was not a Christian, would I sit down with them and have a conversation and say, listen, I've told you about this. Don't you understand, this is what can happen when you yoke yourself to someone who's not a believer. Am I going to be very honest with them? Yes, absolutely. But am I I going to be mean to that that unbeliever? Of course not. If they marry them anyway, am I going to reject them? Am I going to treat both of them rudely? No, I'm going to to love my my daughter, my son just as much, and I'm going to love that unbelieving son or daughter-in-law especially because... I need for them to come to know Christ. So in in that situation, I think you need to be able to say to your unbelieving friend, listen, I'm sorry that happened to you. You need to know, I'm sure your parents thought they were doing what was loving, but God loves you. God loves you and loves that girl, whether she's a believer or not. God, Jesus died for them, and I'm sorry you didn't get that message from your parents. You need to grieve with them. You need to feel what they feel. Give you another example. Let's say uh, their reason for not believing is, well, it's because of what that preacher said. And when they mention that preacher, you go, wait a second, that's one of my favorite preachers. I I like him. I, I listen to all his sermons. I read his books. I admire him. Listen, this is not the time to defend your favorite preacher. Your favorite preacher doesn't need your defense, by the way. Sometimes even the best preacher can say things in a way that is unkind, can say things in a way that is hateful, judgmental, self-righteous. You need to be able to say, did he really say that? Can I see the video? And you watch it and you go, okay, yeah, listen, I do not agree with that. You just need to understand, he's not representing the gospel well in that case. They need to hear you say 
I feel for you. I feel for what this other Christian has done to you. You are not betraying anybody. You're not, you're not being a traitor to our side. You're doing what Jesus would want you to do. All right, number two. You need to tell them why this happens. See, to many unbelievers, the stories of Christians behaving badly, that's just proof that Christianity is a lie. But it's not. And there's two reasons. The first one, it's probably not something you need, to, you, you need to lead with, but it's something we need to agree on. And that is, plenty of terrible things are done in the name of Jesus by people who aren't really Christians. Can we all agree on that? Can we all agree there are plenty of people who are branded Christians or who claim to be Christians and they don't know Jesus and they end up doing unchristian things and we get blamed for it? And I'll give you an example, and this may get me into trouble, but I stand by this. So... Uh, some of you may be aware, if you're not, it's right out there for you to see if you want to look it up. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. had to step down from, the, from being president of Liberty University after years of just horrific actions and words. We're talking sexual immorality. We're talking about financial in, impropriety. We're talking about just idiotic statements. I mean, he needed to be fired. And he was. And it used to drive me nuts when they would say, well, you know, another preacher is, is being an idiot. And I'd say, he's not a preacher. He's an attorney. He's the son of a preacher. That's not the same thing. But then he gave an interview to Vanity Fair after he had been fired. And I quote, he said, because of my last name, people assume I'm a religious person, but I'm not. And his point was, why is everybody surprised that I'm doing these kinds of things? I'm not even a believer just because I'm the son of one of the world's most famous Christians doesn't mean that I'm a religious person. And that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Sometimes the bad actions of a supposedly Christian person is a way of showing that they aren't really following Christ, even if they identify that way, even if they're known that way. Um, I'll give you another example, not nearly as uh, controversial, but I, I can remember somebody saying to me, hey, you know, m uh, Christians aren't any better than Muslims because uh, look at Timothy McVeigh. He, he blew up the Oklahoma City, you know, that building in Oklahoma City, and he was a Christian. And I just happened to have read an article. And I said, listen, Timothy McVeigh was not a Christian. You assume he was because he was a white guy living in Oklahoma, but he, he specifically said... I, do not, I am not a believer in any religion. I don't believe in heaven or hell. I said, you know, don't, don't just assume that someone's a Christian because of how they look. So sometimes in some certain cases, when you know for a fact that this person is not a believer, you can say that. Don't blame Christianity for what this person did, for what Jerry Falwell Jr. did, for what Timothy McVeigh did, because they're not a believer. But most of the time, although that helps us to know that's not really a, an adequate defense. That's not going to help you convince anybody. Because to them, they're going to say, you're just dodging everything. If our standard answer, whenever they come to you and say, look at what this Christian did or said, if your standard answer is, well, that's probably because he's not really a Christian, they're going to say, you're just not accepting the fact that Christians mess up. See, it's not actually true because there are plenty of times when Christians do mess up and sometimes mess up terribly. It's not only not true historically, it's not even true biblically. Because Christianity is not a religion, this is what you need to say to your friend. See, the reason why these things happen is because Christianity is not a religion in which the best are chosen. 
Christianity is not a religion that says, here are the rules, if you can follow them, then you're in the club. Here are the standards, if you can meet this standard, if you can hit this bar, then we'll let you in. No, Christianity is about whosoever will may come. It's about recognizing, I'm lost, I am a sinner, I have made a mess of my life, I've hurt others, I am destined for hell and I deserve it, but Jesus died for my sins. He loved me enough to take my place. I'm such a sinner, the Son of God Himself had to die for me. But I trust Him and that's that's why I'm saved. And because that's the message of Christianity, oftentimes really good people aren't drawn to it. People who come from good homes and people who have learned a strict moral code and people who have their act together, if they didn't grow up Christian, if they didn't grow up hearing the gospel and accept Christ as a, as a child, they're not drawn to salvation. They're not drawn to the gospel. That doesn't apply to, that doesn't appeal to them. So we do tend to get the worst of the worst sometimes. We get people who come from terrible circumstances because they know they need salvation. The gospel is good news to them. So it's no wonder that Christians end up doing some bad things. And even Christians who've been Christians for years, although we believe and the Bible tells us that the longer we spend with Jesus, the more we should look like Him, we still mess up. And the Bible tells us we will. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the Apostle John writing to Christians saying, Don't you go around thinking you have no sin, because you do. Sometimes that sin comes out. So here's one thing you need to say to your friend. I didn't make this up, but I like it. The, gospel, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Now don't, I know some of you are immediately going to raise your hand and say, well, wait a second, I thought that saints was just the people of God, and so we're all saints. Yes, that is biblically true. We are all saints because that just means the people of God. I'm using it in the, the way the, the world uses the word saint. When you talk to someone outside the church and even some inside the church who don't know the scriptures, when they say saint, they mean somebody who's loftier, higher, spiritually advanced, somebody to be looked up to. The church is not a museum for saints. It's not where you go to see the people who've got it all together. It is a hospital for sinners. So here's a little illustration you can give your friend. Say, okay, let's say you take someone who's from a primitive part of the world, they don't have technology, they don't have modern medicine, and you bring them to our country and you give them a tour of a hospital. And they go to all the rooms and they meet with the patients and they meet with the doctors and they watch some surgeries and they see some uh, medicine going, taking place, some treatment taking place, and at the end of the tour they say, man, that place is full of sick people. I mean, there's nothing there but sick people. And some of them, they're probably not gonna live the week. People are dying every day in that place. There's no way I'm going to trust modern medicine because you go to the center of modern medicine and all you see is sick people. And of course you would say, well, of course you see sick people. That's what it's for, is to make sick people well. So the point of the story is, of course you're going to see Christians making mistakes because the church is not for perfect people. It's for sinners. And although we should be growing to be more like Jesus, we still stumble sometimes. Now, I'll give you another one, and this one I like a lot. In fact, I've given you a little link. You can type into your computer. You can go watch this when you get home. This is from a book, my one of my favorite books that I've read this year. It's called Bullies and Saints 
An honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. It's by John Dixon, who is an Australian Anglican historian. Um, and, and it is about church history, so you have to be a history buff to really enjoy this. But what he does is he goes through this history of, of Christianity and all the major scandals, some of the things I've talked about, like the Crusades and the Inquisition and the wars of religion. And he talks about, okay, what really happened? Because there's a lot of a lot of things that are assumed about those stories that aren't true. There are some ways in which things aren't, the, the actual history isn't as bad as what people believe. There are other stories in which you read it and you say, no, we as Christians should be grieved over that. But it's an interesting book. It's well-written. The part I want to tell you about is the very beginning. At the very beginning, he talks about how uh, to do an illustration, he rented a cello. He took a one, two-hour cello lesson, he practiced for five days. Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, cello suite practiced it for five days. And then they put a camera on him in a concert hall and they taped him playing that piece of music. Now, if you watch, if you watch that link, it starts with an actual cello master playing Bach's cello suites, and it's beautiful. I mean, cello is my favorite instrument of all. It's just gorgeous. And then John Dixon gets up and he plays it. And it's horrible. And you just think, if that was the only version of that song you ever heard, you'd think, that's the worst song I've ever heard. Some, you know, what a team, team of chimps write that song or something? I, I, how, how does that happen? And his point is, Jesus wrote a beautiful tune, the most beautiful tune that's ever been written. The gospel, I mean, just to illustrate the point, I've had non-Christians who've come to me and said, listen, I, I read the Gospels. I still don't believe Jesus is divine, but man, what a moral genius he was. If people would just live out his teachings, the world would be such a wonderful place. Now we say, amen. I wish you could believe that he was more than that, but yes, amen. Jesus created a beautiful tune. The Gospel is that beautiful tune. The fact that we as Christians can't play that tune well sometimes butcher it does not mean the writer of the song is wrong and it doesn't mean the song is any less beautiful it just means the players are messed up so keep that in mind and share that with your friend this is why you see christians do bad things because we just can't play the beautiful tune number three you need to call out evil in the church and this, along with that first one, grieving when people are hurt, this is the kind of thing that's not so much what you do in conversation. This is something you need to do on an ongoing basis. This is how you, how you gain credibility with unbelievers. They need to see that we're as angry about evil in the church as they are. In fact, that we're as angry, angrier about evil in the church than we are about evil outside the church. Put it this way. If you were mad at the Houston Chronicle for reporting all that stuff about the SBC three years ago, keep in mind, they wouldn't have had anything to report if we would have done what we were supposed to do. If we would have held people accountable, if we would have brought sin out into the light and, and stood up for victims, they wouldn't have had anything to report. So when you hear some famous Christians saying hateful things in the media, your non-Christian friends should hear you say, that's wrong. That's not the way a Christian acts. That makes me angry. When you're around a fellow Christian and they're behaving like a jerk in public, you need to call them out on it. Not in a, a loud uh, theatrical way, but you need to take them aside and say, you've got to stop. 
You are disgracing the name of Jesus. See, the problem is the world sees us angrily condemning their sins, but ignoring the sin in our own house. And that's the opposite of what Jesus said. You know, Jesus told us to get the, eye, get the plank out of your own eye, right? Why are we so angry with non-Christians for acting non-Christian anyway? Why does it make us so angry when unbelievers act like unbelievers? Shouldn't it make us angrier when we see our fellow believers acting in ways that do not demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And I know for some of you that seems backward because again, we're just taught you be loyal to your tribe and you lash out at anybody who, who attacks your tribe, but it's consistent with what we see in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples. When Jesus was here, there were people within Judaism who were flagrantly sinful. There were prostitutes, there were tax collectors, people like that. Jesus was consistently kind to them. He led many of them to leave their life of sin and to change their lives forever. He didn't endorse their sin. He didn't party with them and say, everything's great. Hey, just continue living the way you live. But he also didn't blast them. He didn't stand up on a stump and say, look at those prostitutes and tax collectors. They're going to hell, and I'm happy about it. No, he was, they loved him because they found in him an acceptance, a grace that they had never seen before. But on the other hand, the most conspicuously moral people in the society, the scribes and the Pharisees, he consistently hammered on them. This is why when people come to me and say, yeah, you act like we're supposed to be nice to unbelievers, but Jesus was rude all the time. And I'm like, yeah, he was rude to the religious people, not the irreligious. He was rude to the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because they knew better. Because they were misrepresenting the God of the scriptures, his father. Because they were driving people away from salvation. Read Matthew 23 sometime, and you'll see what I'm talking about. There's another example. The very first Christians in the book of Acts, they faced criticism, ridicule, outright persecution on a daily basis, and yet they never lashed out. They never said, okay, let's band together as believers and, and let's, let's, uh, you know, let's punish those who are harmful to us. No, they trusted God to get justice for them. But on the other hand, when a Christian couple, Ananias and Sapphira, showed up and lied about how much money they'd given to the church, Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, struck them dead. So yeah, you can spew hatred towards Christians, you can throw them in prison, you can stone one of them to death. but you better not lie about what you give. Why? Well, don't, don't worry. God is going to punish people who persecute His people. That's why the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Leave room for the wrath of God. But we as God's people need to hold one another accountable and say, you know, you can't lie about how righteous you are. You can't put on a show of righteousness. That disgraces the gospel. And then there's the Apostle Paul. I, I like to think about how hard it must have been for Paul after he got saved, because he lived pretty much his entire life after that in Roman territory, among Gentiles, among pagans. And listen, y'all, if you think it's ungodly in big cities in America, if you think Las Vegas or San Francisco or New York City, if you think there's a lot of godlessness and a lot of things that offend the Lord there, 
Rome would have made that look like a Sunday school picnic. And Paul lived in that world. He saw this stuff. Rampant, uh, anything goes sexuality and, and, and the whole nine yards, idolatry. And yet, in Paul's letters, you'll see him say, hey, you used to behave like those pagans. Don't be like that anymore. But he doesn't say, hey, let's all go out and tell the pagans that they're going to burn in hell and we're happy about it. He doesn't say, let's all go and boycott all the pagan businesses so they'll go out of business and so Christian businesses will, will get ahead. Uh, in fact, he tells them, you know, if pagan wants to go, to go with him to the temple and eat some meat, you go ahead and do it. That's, that's fine. But on the other hand, when Christians were behaving in an unchristian way, when, for instance, Paul hears about a guy in Corinth who's sleeping with his own mother-in-law, he says, you tell him he is not welcome in your church until he repents. You hold one another accountable. You do not, you do not besmirch the name of Jesus. You do not divide God's church. You do not drive people away from the gospel. Now, let me, let me say this clearly. I think y'all know this. You're good people, but I need to say this in case anybody misunderstands. I am by no means advocating a witch hunt mentality in churches. If anybody thinks, oh, well, what I need to do is just walk around looking for Christians who are messing up so I can blast them, that is not what I'm talking about. We are called at all times to be humble, to be gentle, to be respectful. When we confront someone, we do it according to Matthew 18, which means you go to that person first, privately. Give them the chance to reckon with their sin and repent. You don't start on social media. You don't start in a deacon's meeting or, or a committee meeting or in the, on the floor of the church. And, and even when you have to do that, even when you have to make it public, you do it with sorrow in your heart, not with a sense of self-righteousness and joy. But we call out evil. We must call out evil within the church for our own sake. Not for the gospel's sake. The gospel doesn't need our defense, but for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of the lost, so that they know what the gospel is all about. Number next, what is that? Number three, number four. Then you need to show them how the gospel actually leads to good. Show them how if people lived out the gospel, it would actually change the world for good. So uh, here's where you need to acknowledge, we all need to agree. Religion, period, no matter what religion you're talking about, aside from weird, crazy, violent cults, but the major religions, whatever you want to name, it's like fire. It can be good, it can be bad. It can do good things, it can do bad things. You know, fire uh, can heat your food, it can warm your house, it can light your room, it can power your car. On the other hand, it can burn down a house, it can be turned into weapons that kill people. Same way with religion. Even a non-Christian, non-true religion can have good impact on society. Uh, it gives people a sense of identity and community. It gives them a moral code. It gives them a plan to self-improvement. I remember back in the 90s when Akeem Olajuwon was the best player on the Rockets, and he went through this moment where all of a sudden he got in touch with his Muslim faith. And I remember at the time being like, man, I've been praying for that guy's salvation. Now he's becoming more of a Muslim. But then you read stories of all his teammates saying, you know, Akeem's a better teammate now. He works harder and he's more humble. And, and so it's just proof. Even a religion that we don't believe is true can still have some positive impacts in the world. On the other hand, 
religion can be twisted and misused and do horrible damage. And I'm not just talking about the Jim Joneses of the world and the people like that who use religion to do horrific things. I mean, I mean this. So if all you have is religion, and even, I'm talking even the Christian religion, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you haven't really embraced the gospel, but you are, you are seeing Christianity as a way to be a good person, a way to be acceptable to God, and it's all about rules and rituals, here's the problem. None of us can live up to that moral code. Whether you're talking about Christianity, Judaism, Islam, any other religion, Mormonism, we can't do it, and we know it. And even if we have the rest of the world fooled and they think we're good, we know in our hearts, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not living up to this. I'm not the kind of person people think I am. And so to make myself better, and that's the, that's the corruption angle. That's the hypocrisy. People see us messing up. But in order to make ourselves feel better and to prop up our own sense of righteousness, we'll loudly condemn the lifestyles of people who aren't measuring up. Because, you know, they're less righteous than me. That's the division. That's where the division comes in. And we may even get to the point of saying, you know, if, I'm, if I commit some act of violence against an unbeliever, I bet that will really make God love me. That will show my fellow uh, church members how zealous I am for the gospel. That's where Saul of Tarsus was. That's the dark side of religion. And this is why there are some unbelievers who will say, I don't really have a problem with religion. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I just have a problem with fundamentalism. If everybody would just tone things down a little bit. You know, religious moderation, they're fine with, but taking it so seriously, they're not. So here's the thing. The gospel has no dark side. There is no dark side to the gospel. There's this... Instead, there's this story that we are so sinful, the Son of God had to die in our place. Therefore, we never, if you are living by the gospel, if you've embraced the gospel, you will never feel superior to anybody else. If as a Christian you ever feel superior to someone else, you know that's not the gospel. Because the gospel tells you that person's doing some awful things and I'm capable of those things too. Maybe I used to do those things. And if I didn't do those things, it's only because I didn't think of them. So there's no reason for me to feel superior. That's, that person's not an enemy. They're not the scum of the earth. They're a, a child of God who needs to come home. They're a lost sibling that I want to bring back to my father. And we need to see them, uh, even, even the people who are, who are hostile towards us. This is why Jesus said, love your enemies. And he was serious because when we see an enemy... We need to see them the way we would see a sibling who is estranged from the family and who cusses at us anytime we call them. Do I hate my brother if he's treating me that way? Well, I don't like him much, but I sure do want him to come home. I sure do want him to be reconciled to the family. And that's the way we should see our enemies in Christ. So you, ask, you explain that to an unbeliever and then you say, do you really want me to believe that only moderately? Or do you want me to live it out 100%? Would the world be a better place if Christians just took the gospel and said, well, we're sort of sinful, but we're basically good. And, and you know, my enemies, yeah, I, I don't want to kill them, but I'm not going to go all the way to loving them. No, the world would say, no, 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 live that out 100%. You'll make the world a better place. Explain this to them. The gospel produces good things. Again, is fundamentalism a problem? Well, it depends on what you're fundamental about. If you're fundamental about the gospel, 
then that is exactly what the world needs. And then number five, finally, show them the good that is done by the gospel versus the evil that is done in the name of erasing religion. So I've written a lot of this. I've put a lot of this down verbatim for you so you can actually use this if you want. But you can talk about how, listen, I am not telling you that all atheists and unbelievers are evil. I don't even think most are. I don't think you are. But if you look at over the last century, the bloodiest regimes have been atheist regimes. You're talking about the Soviet Union. You're talking about China, especially under Mao. You're talking about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Even Nazism. It, it drives me nuts when people say, well, the Nazis, that's an example of, of Christians doing evil things. Was, was Germany a, a primarily Christian nation in the 30s and 40s? Yes. Is it shameful that a lot of Christians, including some pastors, supported Adolf Hitler? Yes. Were the Nazis a Christian movement? Absolutely not. You read their writings after the war, they, they read their writings and you find that, that the, the Nazis' goal was to replace German Christianity with a religion that was based on power and on German national pride. They hated the gospel because it was very Jewish and it was focused on loving enemies and, and humility and all these qualities they thought were weak. And then you can say, listen, the two worst nations in the world today in terms of human rights, North Korea and China. Those are both nations whose official policy is to be hostile toward religion. So again, I'm not saying that atheism makes you be an evil, violent person. I'm saying that if you think the world would be a better place without religion, I'm just telling you over the last hundred years, anytime a country has attempted to do that, the things that happened were far worse than anything any religious group has ever done. And then, that's the negative argument, then you present the positive argument. And again, this, I'm just going to read this mostly verbatim. You can show your friend the good that's been done in the name of the gospel. For instance, things like public education, hospitals and hospices, uh, the rights of children, the end of child abuse and infanticide, the idea of basic human rights. These are all unheard of before Jesus comes on the scene. I mean, Christianity literally brought those things to the world and more. So in fact, when we criticize the church for being corrupt and divisive and violent, the whole irony is that the very standards we use to criticize come from Jesus. They wouldn't exist if he hadn't existed. Modern science, we'll talk about science in a couple of weeks, but modern science came out of a Christian worldview. So the idea that Christianity is unscientific is not historically accurate. Um, unbelievers, when they talk about American history, they like to give the Enlightenment credit for the idea that all people are created equal, but the New Testament was making that argument 1,500 years before people like Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. The abolition of slavery in England and America was led by almost exclusively Christian men and women. Not saying Christ that slavery wouldn't eventually have been uh, abolished. I'm saying that in those days, nobody was working against slavery except Christians like William Wilberforce, like, uh, like Hannah Moore uh, in, in England, and like people like William Lloyd Garrison in the United States. And they were almost all devout Christians motivated by their faith. And it's interesting, historians today, when they look at that, they just can't figure it out. Because the theory is, and it's normally a rock-solid theory, the theory is all politics is self-interested. People always vote for what benefits them the most, right? Rich people want lower taxes, poor people want higher taxes. We all get that. 
But these people, they were working for a cause that didn't benefit them at all. And they were giving their lives to that cause. A cause that in many ways would harm them because the economies of their nations would suffer when slavery was abolished, and yet they did it. Same thing with the civil rights movement in our country in the 1950s and 60s. People sort of oh, ignore the fact that it was a explicitly Christian movement. Uh, the arguments made by Martin Luther King, by Fannie Lou Hamer, by people like that, it wasn't about, well, these white Christians are evil and they need to leave their churches and get right and, and embrace liberalism. No, they said, hey, start practicing what you preach. Read your Bibles. God has said that we are all children of God. How dare you treat a child of God the way you're treating us? So when they stood in front of fire hoses, when they got their heads cracked by billy clubs and attacked by police dogs, they were doing their best to be obedient to the Sermon on the Mount. And that changed our country forever. By the way, side note, I didn't write this down here. I'm going to get political here for a second. Today, when you have people on the left who are trying to do civil rights advocacy. I think it's noteworthy that almost none of them are coming from a Christian perspective. And it's noteworthy how much less success they have at changing minds than someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, who sang hymns and practiced what she preached. It's like you're, you're trying to change us from a perspective, but you don't have any moral gravity because you don't have the gospel on your side. It's just my opinion. In Eastern Europe in the 1990s, communism was brought down mostly peacefully, and the churches were at the center of it. Pope John Paul was at the center of it. Uh, Polish priests were at the center of it. Orthodox Christians in Eastern Europe were at the center of it. In South Africa, when apartheid ended, I don't know if you remember this, but people just assumed that the black majority would just slaughter the white minority that had been mistreating them for all those decades, but it didn't happen because a black clergyman was in charge of putting things back together again. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission brought about reconciliation in a way that didn't lead to violence. So I'll just close with this. In the words of Tim Keller, when people have done injustice in the name of Christ, they are not being true to the spirit of the one who himself died as a victim of injustice and who called for the forgiveness of his enemies. When people give their lives to liberate others as Jesus did, they're realizing the true Christianity that Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and other Christians have called for. You don't have to say all of that, but you need to argue from a perspective of saying, this is the good that comes out of the gospel. You need to give them another view of history that shows the full picture. All right, I hope that helps. Let me pray for us, and God bless you in that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do grieve that many times uh, your church has let you down, has disgraced you, that we individually, we can think of times when we did not represent you well. So it shouldn't surprise us that others, including Christians in more prominent positions, have done that. But Lord, that gives us more work to do, and I pray that we would grieve alongside those who are hurt, that we would hold one another accountable to, to represent you well, and that we would speak to people who have been turned away from the, from the gospel by the bad behavior of Christians. We would speak to them in a way that is wise and compassionate and true and courageous, and that helps them to see 
That, Lord, the, the actions of sinful Christians do not change who Jesus is. I pray that we would bring them back to the character of Jesus and that they might be saved. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.